1: Well, we are sitting down uh, with Dr. Jeffrey Mogul, who is a neuroscientist and pain researcher uh, interested in how genetic social factors and sex differences affect pain. He heads the Pain Genetics Lab at McGill University and is the founder and director of NAPS, which sounds a lot cuter than it is. Uh, <laughs> NAPS, it does sound very cute. It does sound <laughs> fucking cute. NAPS uh, stands for the North American Pain School. Um. Uh, nothing cute about pain. I don't think, uh, although who knows, Jeffrey, you might change my, my tone on that. Uh, I guess let's, okay. I, you know what? I, I, I was going to like, maybe hold on to, to this until a little bit later, but I can't, I'm, I have to ask you, um, before we get into like, what is pain, I guess this kind of will get into what is pain, but just recently, uh, you and a panel of others, have actually changed the definition of pain. So can you can you give us a, a little bit of bre- of a breakdown of what the what the I guess long standing old definition of pain was and then and how did that change and what is now today's definition of pain?
2: Right. Okay, so the so the Old definition. Let's see if I've memorized it. I should. I've taught it enough times over enough years. So pain is a sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage or described in terms of such damage. Okay. So the first thing that's interesting about that is that it's both a sensation and an emotion at the same time. And this part, everyone still agrees with. It's a weird thing. It's kind of like, uh, you know, light is a particle and a wave at the same time. Mm. It's got a duality to it, but it's true. And the science totally backs that up. Uh, It's associated with actual or potential tissue damage. So that's easy too. If I take a knife and I put it through your arm, it's going to hurt, but it's going to hurt long before it damages any of the cells uh, of your skin, right? It's going to hurt when it's almost about to damage you. So that makes sense. It's the last part that weirds people out, uh, described in terms of such damage. And so what that means is if someone tells you that it feels like someone was taking a red hot poker and shoving it into their arm, even though they have no tissue damage that you can see or nerve damage that you can see, um, they almost certainly have pain and they should be believed and You know, eventually we figure out the reason, even though we're not sure in every case why someone has pain. Mm -hmm. The committee that I was on decided eventually that the word described was a problem, because that implies that the only people that could have pain are people that can describe something to you. And of course babies have pain but they can't describe mm-hmm. it and mm-hmm. animals at least some animals almost certainly have pain and they can't describe it either. Mm-hmm. So we changed the wording to get rid of the verb describe.
1: Okay, so what mm-hmm. is the what's the word did you change it with another another uh, word?
2: Yes, the the word we changed it to was resembling. Um, ah, okay. and the nice thing about resembling is is that it's dependent on either the person telling you that it resembles that, or if we have other reason to believe that it's similar, that it resembles, um, Mm. then for an animal or for a baby, we could come to the conclusion that they were in pain.
0: Right, so it could be described through resembling that by somebody talking about how it resembles that. And then in addition, Mm -hmm. also just resemble it by, uh, by observation.
2: Yeah, that's precisely it. And of course, everything is observation, right? When everything is pain behavior, if I ask you how much pain you're in, and you say eight, well, that's a behavior you're making that I have to interpret, right? So there's actually nothing different about human self-reports um, versus looking at other behaviors that humans or animals might make.
0: Huh. So I, I've always been—it's um, um, funny because we talk, we talk, we like, we love hacks on Sick Boy podcasts. You so love hacks, you love right? hacks. Yeah, <laughs> guilty. Uh, so we sometimes talk about like, get, like, what are the hacks to getting seen quicker in the emergency room? Though we don't advise that people actually do these things. We yeah, talk about right. things like, usually, like the when the hasn't. triage <laughs> nurse—I yeah. know where you're going here—when here. <laughs> the triage nurse says, "Honestly." scale of one to 10, how much pain are you experiencing? And I've always like, not that I've personally done this, but I've always said like, (laughs) if you say higher, you're, you could potentially be seen faster. So are they like making a, a sort of like using the words that you're describing with plus like your actual like resemblance of pain that they're observing to, to say like, ah, he said 10, but like, this to me looks more like a three
2: right so uh there's a joke among uh pain docs um that the most common pain rating on a scale from zero to ten uh is (laughs) eleven
3: right? right. and
2: you're right to distrust it completely right Uh, let me tell you a story so my wife Uh, used to be a chiropractor and at her uh, chiropractic clinic, whenever someone went in, they were given like this form and it had a human body and they were supposed to, you know, draw an arrow to the part that hurt Mm -hmm. and then put a number by the arrow to tell the chiropractor how much it hurt. And my wife always explained the instructions in the following way. She said, zero is no pain And 10 is pain that's so bad that I would rather you take a gun and shoot me now Mm. than live another minute in the pain I'm in. Mm. And even with that instruction, people were giving nines, nines and a halfs, even tens, even though they had driven themselves to the chiropractic clinic and they weren't moaning, right? Mm. So you're right that people Mm. sometimes have a hard time with scales, the thing is it's kind of like democracy, right? It's the worst system except for every other system that's ever been tried, which mm-hmm. is even worse than that. Right. And yeah, when you're right. in
3: pain and, and 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 there's there has to be some I'm assuming there's some factor of while you're in pain, your ability to actually quantify that pain is probably quite difficult versus reflecting on pain that you've experienced in the past.
2: Especially if it's pain that has a big emotional component to it. So sometimes a better question of asking people for simply one number is to ask them for two numbers. One is the intensity of the pain. And the second number is the unpleasantness of the pain. Hmm. And those things often go together,
1: but often they don't. Right, pain. Like I mean, pain just seems like such a subjective thing, you know. And it's it's very tricky. It's like I'm, I'm, I'm think I can't not think about like David Blaine taking an ice pick and like slowly shoving (laughs) it through his fucking bicep, you know, and like and like from one end out the other, and that he he and he does this very calmly. He does this without showing any any signs of pain, but obviously, like that has to hurt. You know what I mean, or or like, or or can it not? Is there is there is it so subjective that like some people actually have a hard harder time feeling the the sensation of pain than others?
2: Uh, there is huge variability, more variability than you would even imagine. So, uh, forget ice picks, which might be a trick, right? And right. and walking on hot coals—that's more physics than mm. biology, right? Um, but take something like this. So I take um, a, you know, an inch square metal plate and I put it on your forearm um, and I heat it up to 49 degrees Celsius for six seconds. So there's one study that I'm thinking of right now in my head where they did that to 500 people and they asked them for ratings from zero, no pain to a hundred worst pain imaginable. Mm. And they got ratings from five to 95 for exactly the same stimulus.
1: Yeah. Right. Right. Wow. As
2: much variability as you can think of, that's how much there is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's like tattoos, right? Like I, my, my arm is covered in tattoos and, pretty much every tattoo on my arm, I would say the pain scale would be like it was a two or a three. Like it was it's sometimes almost barely noticeable. But I know some people that have gotten tattoos on their arms and they're like, that was extraordinary pain, like very, very painful. So it is, it is a weird, it's a, it, what is, what is like the, what's the purpose of, of pain? It, it, that That sounds like a bit of a silly question, but like, is there, is there like a biological evolutionary purpose to it?
2: So it's actually a great question and it has at least three different answers because it, it depends on the duration of the pain that you're talking about so that, so the hmm. easy one is what's the purpose for short lasting pain what we call acute pain. Um, And that everyone knows the answer to, right? That's because you want to be able to pull your hand away from the hot stove before you get burned or before the burn gets worse. So, you know, it's to prevent tissue damage or to minimize tissue damage. There's, by the way, another reason for it that people often don't think of, which is um, it's the world's best teaching signal. So like toddlers need to learn at some point that they can jump down off the couch, but they can't jump down off their sister's top bunk bed, right? At some point, we need to learn what our bodies are able to do and what the limits of that Mm. is. And pain Mm. is the way people learn, right? Mm. Mm. So that's for short-lasting pain. Now, what about pain that lasts for, I don't know, minutes to hours to days?
1: Like chronic pain, yeah, right. Well, no,
2: that's not even chronic pain. Okay, okay. That's what you might call tonic pain. Okay. And, and that purpose is um, uh, basically to enforce recuperation, to punish any attempt to move the body part that's trying to heal um, so that it makes the animal stay put it. makes people stay in bed. Um, This is before casts, of course, right? But, you know, if you break your arm, you know, and you're an animal or you're a person before casts were invented, what you really need to do is stop moving the arm if you have any chance of it healing up, you know, properly without getting infected and killing you. And pain is the punishment if you try to do anything else. So Mm. that makes perfect sense, Hmm. right? Evolutionarily speaking. Yeah. And then the big open question is why do we have chronic pain that lasts for weeks to months to years? And the usual answer you'll get from pain researchers is there's no reason at all. It's like, it's a pathology. It's, it's the alarm stuck in the on position. Um, and, People have been saying that for decades. It's probably, you know, at least partially true. But now people are starting to believe that maybe there's a purpose to chronic pain too. Um, And there's been some very amusing studies, one done in squid, and then we published something in mice based off it. And the conclusion from those very recent studies is that maybe it's to remind animals and people that they're um, more susceptible to predators than they used to be Uh. um, and that they really ought to change their risk-benefit calculations for their behavior because it'd be easier for them to get picked off because they're injured. So Uh, in some sense, chronic
1: pain
3: is to remind you
1: that you're injured. It remind you that you're vulnerable. Yeah. yeah. What would be the, what Uh. would be
3: like in the, in the, in the environment that we find ourselves in as humans Mm. now, which is obviously very different, evolutionarily than you know, thousands of years ago when we had you know animals that we ha- had to protect ourselves against which we don't have now. What, what would be the practical purpose in, in the environment that we find ourselves in for chronic pain? Is that still just like a big open question?
2: No, but, but that's, you've hit upon the problem with evolution, right? Is that evolution doesn't care about the situation we're in now evolution only cares about the situation that we used to be in for hundreds of thousands of years. And so you're right. We're the top predator. Now there's nothing to be afraid of. And yet chronic pain patients are still vigilant and they're not vigilant about predation anymore, but there's high levels of anxiety. um, And what in the field is called catastrophizing. And these are things that make chronic pain last and make it worse and it's a big problem um that may you know relate to this original uh ancestral hypervigilance
0: right Spe- How- speaking about um speaking about anxiety and ca- catastrophizing um it makes me think of of like psychological pain and like i think of myself when when i experience really high levels of anxiety i get like this like chest pain that's like mm. a very physical like v- very real tangible pain but like it's not protecting tissue as far as I know. And it's like, so So, like, where does that come from? And why do I experience that type of reaction?
2: That's a great question. And there's lots of speculation about that and very little data, but there are some who believe that, look, pain is very old, right? I mean, evolutionarily, and it was, you know, uh, you know animals going back all the way to bacteria are at least avoiding the things that can hurt them. And the idea is that emotional pain uh, sort of borrowed the neural circuitry of physical pain and then modified it a tad. Mm. Um, and that is why a heartache is literally a heartache, heartache yeah. Um, yeah. because the systems that were in place for physical pain were borrowed to produce emotional pain.
1: Whoa. So, I, 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 is
0: it, so wait, would it be true that, because I've never really thought of this, but thinking of, Thinking of uh, human beings as being like um, one of the most, in terms of like consciousness and emotional intelligence, being the most uh, evolved sort of beings on this planet, um, did the emotional, did our emotional, emotional intelligence system sort of evolve later than our our physical system? So it oh, uh, borrowed
2: a hundred percent. That's to, what you
0: mean, borrowed the circuitry. like Yeah,
2: yeah, 100%. Yeah. That's the way it happened. And again, when you ask, you know, what animals are capable of the kind of emotional responses you're talking about, it's probably only primates, mm. right? Mm. Like even going down to cats and dogs and rats and mice, like maybe, maybe not chimpanzees, probably us for sure. And, and so, yeah, I agree with that completely.
1: Oh, crazy. Uh, I, I, I want to get into like what accounts for the differences in how we experience pain. And I guess to kick that off, we have a really great question from one of our patrons, Megs. Um, she was wondering, uh, and, and I've heard this too, so many times. She said, I, I've heard women and men experience pain differently, or that women have a higher pain threshold. How accurate is this? Are there any studies done on this?
2: You know, it's interesting the question was asked that way because that's always the way people ask it. And I, I find it a little bit odd. So whether women experience pain differently than men, like, does it feel different to women or men? And that let me answer that by saying, I don't know. No one knows. We'll never know. And it's a bigger problem than that, right? Like, I don't know that you guys feel pain the same way that I do. Right. No, no one can know what someone else's pain feels like. Right. Because pain is subjective, right? So this is just a problem of consciousness. It's a a problem of philosophy. Um, it is true that, um, women give higher ratings to pain than men do and their thresholds are lower, uh, and their tolerance is lower. So when you measure pain in a, a controlled way in laboratory experiments, um, pretty much across the board, women are more sensitive. And I know that comes to a mm-hmm. shock to a lot of people because most people guess the other way and they reason that, oh, because women, you know, have to deal with childbirth, they must be more tolerant of pain. Yeah, uh, yeah. But it turns out that the science goes dramatically in the other direction.
1: Huh. Yeah, because that's what I've always heard. It's like, oh well, women, women yeah, me too. push a giant human out of their uh, out of their bottom. And like that's <laughs> They've got a higher. Th- I mean, I know I couldn't push a baby out of my penis. Like, I would be, I would be like, take that gun, well, put me I, down. The environment I'm is slightly, there.
3: there's a slightly different environment as well happening with the, the, the opening. Yes, <laughs> yes. I'm sure yeah, there's something to do with that.
1: Yeah.
2: And, Maybe and your and butthole course, then. More like and your butthole. Of course, butthole. it's been shown <laughs> that the closer a woman gets to labor, um, their pain sensitivity actually reduces. So there is right. an analgesia that comes with pregnancy. And I've always found that very strange because although it clearly exists and there's, you know, scientific evidence that it exists, it obviously doesn't work,
1: mm. <laughs> at least just, doesn't work yeah, right. nearly well <laughs> enough. Right. <Yeah. laughs> is there, is there, is
3: there an association and maybe this is uh and, and maybe I'm, I'm curious if this has been shown in people with who experience chronic pain, like, is there a, do, do, do people, do people ever experience a, um, does the tolerance for pain rise when pain is, is, is more frequent, more yeah. frequently, uh, ah. felt like, mm. you know, do you, you know, just like the same way that if I drink, if I drink coffee for a long time, my caffeine, mm. my caffeine tolerance is going to rise or alcohol or whatever, whatever it is. Does that happen with pain?
2: So this is a great question with a surprising answer. So pain is different from every other sensation. So let me give you an example. Um, The normal phenomenon is called habituation. Okay, And the best example of this is you go into a kitchen and you hear the refrigerator humming, right? Hmm. But if you stay in that kitchen for 10 minutes, you will not hear the refrigerator hum anymore. The mm-hmm. hum is just as loud as it used to be, mm-hmm. but you've habituated to it because it's information you don't need. So your brain eventually blocks it out mm-hmm. and all the senses work that way, but pain, it's exactly the opposite. The longer pain is there and the more frequently it's there, the more sensitive people get to
1: Whoa, it. So okay. The problem keeps getting Whoa. worse
2: over time.
1: Huh? Wow. That, that really surprises me. Cause I was, you know, I'm thinking about like, um, Like I think about my dad, right? Who's like experienced like chronic back pain for a long time, and and I always had this like assumption where it's like, well, I guess like you're you've experienced this pain for so long, you're just you're you then just get used to it, and it sort of becomes you sort of become deaf to it after such a period long period of time. So
2: people get used to it. People can get used to almost anything, Um, and they probably stop talking about it. Because right. when they talk about it, people don't react well. It's an interesting right. thing about pain. No everyone wants to talk about their pain and no one wants to hear about anyone else's pain. <laughs> right, they really, right, right. really don't. So people <laughs> learn that it doesn't go over well and usually really they funny. they start to shut up. But the irony is, is that the pain is probably worse five years later than it was when it started.
0: Right. It's funny because I was gonna I was gonna guess it actually and and um, because I was thinking like it, it kind of makes sense though actually as as a as a system to like per, like protect you over time if you have this um, chronic pain that your brain is constantly trying to remind you of it probably has to get worse over time to make you like like say hey you haven't done anything about this yet Like now you got to get it checked out. You got to do something about it.
2: Except the irony of it is, is that there's nothing that can be done, right? Because the tissue is already (laughs) healed. And again, before neuroscience and neurologists and, you know, other options, um, there just wasn't anything that could be done.
0: favorite one-hit wonder
1: or that overpriced toy your parents
2: would never let you have or that tv show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon now what if we could fix it i'm francesca ramsey and i'm delon grant and after 20 years of friendship we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called let me fix it each episode we'll dig into our favorite celebrities shows and brands of yesteryear and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today think of our show as an intervention
3: but with way less stakes.
2: So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
0: That actually Ooh. makes me think of so I I tore my quad in uh, three places um yes. when I was playing rugby like 10 years ago and and um I had a like a full leg cast for like 3 months and when I got out of the leg cast the doctor did an ultrasound and looked at it and said great. You're perfectly healed. And I couldn't use my leg. Like I just couldn't use it. Mm. And I would start use, I I started walking on it. And like, there was something, it wasn't hurting, but there was something like in like psychologically in my brain that was going on to like, to stop me from going to a certain range of motion. Like I just couldn't go past that. And then even when I tried to run, it took me like almost a year to get back to like having a full stride when I was running. And I don't know if it was like physical pain, but it was like some type of like psychological imprint that Protection was left to be like, Hey, yeah. don't fucking so, do that. So in, the
2: field, in the field, we call this fear avoidance. And it turns out that some people get over it like you obviously did. And some people never do. And then they go into this mm. circle mm. Uh, oh. of the fear, making the pain worse and the pain, making the fear worse. And yeah, it can be a real wow. problem. Yeah. I had that.
3: I had that. I had the same thing after, after, after I got hit and broke my pelvis, I, I I carried a limp far longer than I needed to be limping, and you know, mm. and until my physio kind of tuned me into that. Well, um, that was just
0: for insurance purposes, though, right, Taylor? Yeah, yeah, I was just trying to gain the insurance <laughs> <Yeah>. system. Um, <laughs> something that
3: something that I'm really that I'm really uh, I'm really curious about, and especially in light of the conversation, uh, for some context, Jeff, we were talking um, last week on the podcast about our individual experiences with getting our second COVID vaccine and like the degree I heard that of, yeah. yeah, like the degree of severity with, you know, uh, Brian being on like the less severe scale. And I was felt like I was going to die. And,
1: uh, I was the porridge that was just right. And you were just and Jared was, Jared, Jared was, Jared was in the Goldilocks zone.
3: And, uh, and, and this is something that I could probably apply to any time that I've ever been really sick is, I'm wondering what the difference is. Well, let's just say that, but but over the course of that, those 24 hours, I really resonated with the idea that, you know, you don't get used to the pain because actually, even though the sensation was fairly consistent through the day, I felt like I was going insane through the day by having to continuously (laughs) deal with the feelings that I was like, it felt like I was, you know, I was bouncing off the walls because I couldn't, I was too uncomfortable to too uncomfortable to sit still, but, no energy to, to, to do anything except sit still. And anyway, so that was the experience, but I'm wondering where, or in your field, how do you distinguish and or is there a, a, can you distinguish between pain and suffering and what is that Ooh. distinction if there is one and how do you figure out where that line is?
2: So there, there was a very, a very famous guy in the field named Bill Fordyce who uh, came up with this very famous sort of rainbow diagram of inner layers and outer layers. And the, the innermost layer is called nociception. That's just the, the workings of your nerves and, and brain to produce the signal that is going to produce the perception of pain. And then over above nociception, there's pain. And then over above pain, there's suffering. And then above suffering, there's pain behavior, which is the only thing anyone sees from the outside. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, pain is not suffering and suffering isn't pain behavior, right? Someone complaining of pain might be suffering more and they might be suffering more because they're in more pain, but you just don't know. And this, of course, is a big frustration to people who study it and people who try to manage pain that, you know, the it's so subjective fundamentally. And there's just so much variability in what people feel and what they do about what they feel. And so trying to figure out how much suffering is going on is really, really complicated.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, it's it's like it's a very common Um, It's very common. uh, I'm a, I'm a really avid cyclist and, you know, and, you know, competing like locally with, with, uh, with a bunch of groups and, and it's in this cycling world, it's very, like, it's very highly regarded to be able to, to be able to like go to a threshold and like, and hold that threshold or push beyond that threshold and, and that you can, you know, that you can withstand the suffering that you are experiencing, whether it's from your right. heart, your lungs, your legs, and, and hold that for a high period of time.
2: And this is a big explanation for sex differences as well, right? Because, mm. you know, as you know, little baby boys from very young are told to suck it up. Mm. Um, whereas little baby girls are allowed to cry when they fall off their bike. Right. Mm. And so we're, you know, some of it's biological and some of it is just what the culture is drumming into people from the beginning right. about when it is and isn't acceptable to let people know that you're suffering, that you're in pain. How, yeah. you how know, do? You-
0: but I, but I actually find that with that like sentiment, I, I'm, I'm sometimes can be seen as a bit of a crybaby because I like, I'm very comfortable with my emotions and like to like to just let it all out. But then I get positive reinforcement, especially from a lot of women that are like, you're so strong. You're so, you're just so strong. And then that then pats my back. And then I feel like I have a higher pain tolerance because I'm actually pretty emotionally vulnerable, which is a strength.
2: Well, that, that's- I- the fact that the culture is moving in that way is, is it's very good. Yeah. <laughs> and,
3: and I think that, I think that what you, what you just said there, Jeffrey was it like really speaks to a lot of, a lot of cultural things. Like when I think about like my, what my threshold is for going to the emergency room is far higher than it should be. And, and, you know, <laughs> and, 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 mm-hmm. and not just on the, on the physical side, but like on, on the emotional side, like the, the degree to which, we need to feel before we, as men, before we speak up and say mm-hmm. something to somebody, whether it's, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, like grief that we're experiencing after a loss or a mental um, health issue, like anxiety or depression. Like, our th- we are, like, from a young age, there's definitely and, and very obviously that cultural component that says, you know, th- this needs to be, like, you need to be borderline on your deathbed before you come forward mm. and and speak up and
2: which and- is part of the reason why we die younger than- mm-hmm. <laughs> right?
1: Yeah right right <laughs> how, how do genetics play a role in in accounting for differences in in how we experience pain
2: so there's been a lot of twin studies done, which is usually the way they, they go about asking that question. Cool. Um, and, you know, it depends on precisely what type of pain you're talking about and precisely how you ask the question. But in general, uh, genes that you inherit from your parents are almost 50 percent of the answer. A little bit less, but it's pretty close to 50-50. So that's the good news, I guess. Um, the bad news, and again, I've been uh, trying to find pain genes for 25 years now. And uh, the good news there is we can find them. And we know that all they account for about half the variability. The bad news is, is that at the beginning, 25 years ago, we all thought we were looking for three or maybe five genes. And now there's reason to believe that there may be like 4,000 or 6,000 such Whoa. genes. And of wow. course, there's only 22,000 genes total. And so it's getting to a problem where we know the answer, but it's just not practically useful. To, right. to go any further to try to find them,
0: it, right? Would there would there be like a genetic, like a potential or hypothetically a genetic therapy like using CRISPR or something to combat chronic pain? Is exactly. that exactly.
2: So if there was one gene that we could CRISPR, we could do it tomorrow. But Whoa. if there's four thousand genes of which we know presently about fifty of them what are you going to use CRISPR on? Right. right. That's yeah. the problem. Yeah. Interesting.
1: I, we've kind of, we, we sort of talk, talked a little bit about like how, how social factors into uh, social factors factor into the, the differences in how we experience pain. But um, what is the, what's the rock band study?
2: Oh, <laughs> okay. So um, <laughs> let's see. We showed uh, a number of years ago now, 15 years ago, Um, that mice were capable of emotional contagion of pain, which simply meant that if you tested two mice beside each other and they were both in pain, they would show more pain than if you had tested them separately. And what made that finding interesting was that that's only true if uh, they know each other. If they're, if they're cage mates, if they're familiar <laughs> oh. with each other, you saw this effect, which is basically empathy, right? It's yeah, yeah. sort of the lowest form of empathy. So we decided to see if we could see that in people too. So we simply brought in, you know, McGill undergraduates that either knew each other or didn't know each other. And lo and behold, when we tested them for pain, like with them facing each other, if they were friends they both reported higher pain levels huh. than if they were strangers or if we just tested them you know, one by one. And so the animal data suggested that the reason we saw this phenomenon, this emotional contagion of pain in familiars but not strangers was because strangers were stressed. What were they stressed by? Simply being beside a stranger turns out to be stressful in both mice and people. If you go into a room with someone you've never met and I shut the door behind you, even though you're not actually thinking a fight might happen, mm-hmm. I can still measure stress hormones in your blood that, that go up, right? Wow. So the idea was that if we block the stress in strangers, we might be able to see this emotional contagion. And so we did that with a drug that prevents Mysore people from having a stress response, and that worked. And then we said to themselves, well, in people, it doesn't need to be a drug. All we need to do is get the stress levels down. And so we figured all we really needed was to make these strangers not strangers. We needed to have a little get-to-know-you exercise. And the get to know you exercise we ended up choosing was that they would play um, three Beatles songs on Rock Band, which we happen to have in the lab, or <laughs> a collaborator of ours I had in the
3: lab, <laughs> because he studies
2: music. Um, and so they either played Rock Band together as a team, or they played the same songs by themselves And lo and behold, the people that played Rock Band together as a team, when we then went to test their pain, they showed this emotional contagion phenomenon. Whoa. Wow.
3: That's really That's fascinating. So interesting! And I kinda, like, yeah,
2: it, it, it was a fun study, and of course, you know, it got a lot more media attention than it would have if we simply had them, you know, have a little conversation over sure, coffee, right, which right. probably would yeah. have worked just as well, frankly. Right. <laughs> with, like
3: Brian, Brian used to. Um, this makes me think of what you used to do, Brian. Uh, Brian Bri used play to play Rock Band. Uh, play yeah. Rock Band. We used to play a lot of. Uh, oh, I was hero. a <laughs> guitar hero. Back yes, in the day. yes. So were so were. I we. love guitar hero, um, uh, <laughs> um, uh, War pigs. <clears throat> um, <laughs> um, Bri used to live in Dubai and he used to work for a company that did team building. And, uh, and I was, um, I was lucky enough to be, to go to visit Bry there. And while I was there, we did this, that we did an event that his company used, had previously used to host, um, as a team building thing. And, and I mean, I've done a number of team building things in my life, but like, the the uh, the the immediacy of your connection with people mm. when you are given a task that you all have to do and accomplish is is really incredible and how how quickly you can create a connection that is really just based on a, a super singular experience like hey that one time that we had to you know. Build this thing within ten minutes, and we did it better than everybody else. And now, for some reason, we're friends. And I <laughs> and I'll and I'll do something for you that if you had walked up to me on the street ten minutes before we did that, and I didn't know who you were, I would I, I would have gone. That's crazy. It's, That's it's crazy. Because what, it's be-
2: what is friendship? It's three things, right? It's it's someone to drive you to the airport or help you move. But what it really is is shared shared references, right. right? Like things that happen to you both that you can say, remember that time? And Oh mm-hmm. yeah, that was fun. Right. That, mm-hmm. That's what friends have that, you know, strangers don't. Right?
3: And how fascinating mm-hmm. it is that, that once you have that connection, that it's not just the way that you think about that person, it is scientifically the way that you feel, feel about that yeah. person when they hey, are put under, it makes under me, distress. I
1: mean, this might be a little bit left field, but like after realizing that through that, through the rock band study, was there was there any kind of drive um from anybody involved in the study to to like potentially seek out ways where 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 you can reproduce that without the need to actually put two people together in a room and have a shared experience you know cuz like it makes me think about um let's use covid for example you know like you hear that Covid is just ravaging India, and people are dying in droves. And you hear that you hear that on the news, and to a lot of people, that's just a statistic. It's hard to wrap your head around. A lot of people might go, "Oh, that's really sad," but don't actually feel anything tangible about the horror, hor- horrible thing that's happening in India. But like, we would be so much better off as a as a planet, you know, as a as a as a race, if we felt that type of empathy, even for strangers that we just. We do not know. Is there? Is there any? I mean, like this is outside is of pain. Is anybody bottling now, but that like, up? Yeah. Look, <laughs> no. This. This
2: is a. This is a great thought, and pe- people have thought about this before. Um, a guy named Paul Bloom at Yale wrote a book called against empathy. And that was his entire, um, uh, thesis that, you know, the old saying, you know, one person is a tragedy and a million is a statistic, a st- yeah, right? Yeah. We evolved mm-hmm. to respond to individual people. We can't, we just don't have the evolutionary mm, circuitry, to mm. respond to the needs of mass people because remember mm. we evolved in a situation where we only knew 150 people, right? Like right, the tribe right. was all there was, right? And everyone else was a serious, real danger. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just uh, hard it, to get past that in yeah, the modern world. It's, right? it's funny because it's,
1: it's, like I, I, psychedelics I have found have been, have been one kind of, I guess, tool that anecdotally have affected me in that way where it ha- it it does have this ability to change the way that i think and feel about people that i do not know you know like so i wa- i wonder if there is some sort of you know like brian said like it, some sort of bottled up thing that you could just kind of dose it, it the kind world of, with and change the it, way everyone functions
3: spray it from 7 it reminds out. me of yeah. um
0: it's the way like the the way that um like i was listening to a, a, an episode of the daily the other day where they were talking about um the situation in in portland at the end of june where mm-hmm. temperatures were at like 46 degrees Celsius and, and like, and, and people are dying. And, but they're telling these stories of these individuals and they're talking about like, this is why you should care about this stuff. Because if you just heard about these statistics, you wouldn't care. But when you hear the Mm -hmm. stories about the individual people you start to do. So I think like, I think of the way that we're starting to digest news where we're actually hearing these stories where, um, where places like the New York times are now focusing more on those individuals rather than just reporting statistics because, that's ultimately what it's going to take to be Mm. able to like create some type of shift where as a planet, we all start to fucking care about global warming. Or
3: is it a, or is it an, or is it like an evolution? Is it, is it an evolution? Because you mentioned the one hundred and fifty number, which I, which has a relationship to, to, I can't remember what the name of it is, but it has something to do with the amount of people that you can have a relationship. Dunbar's number, number. Yeah. And you know, I mean, that is like you said, it's evolutionary. We, for, for, 99% of our human existence of the existence of our species we've Now it's going to be called super... Facebook's
0: number and it's uh, 2000 connections that you yeah. can have at one yeah. time or yeah. something yeah. like that.
3: Yeah, right, right. <laughs> like I Z- mean Zuckerberg's yeah, number. yeah like will we will we and that's a, I mean that's a, obviously a really interesting speculation to make like will we eventually have evolved to a place where we can empathize with a great with a far greater number of people
2: given enough time but you know, <laughs> right? works <laughs> yeah, 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 really slow. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I,
1: one thing that I that I, before we kind of come to a close here, one thing that I'm I'm just curious to know uh, your 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 Twitter uh, bio um, is a neuroscientist and meta pain researcher interested in genetic sex differences and social modulation in mice and people, and then and then it says mice are people too. Um, what it what's uh, what's behind mice are people too?
2: Well. Um, Just like the rock band study I told you about, um, uh, we've been uh, trying to do studies uh, in recent times in my lab where we do the same study in mice and people uh, as much as is practically possible, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, the pain stimuli you get to mice aren't precisely the same pain stimuli you give to people. And, and obviously you can't do the rock band study in mice. Um, but basically we've been trying to, you know, do very similar studies in both species show that they come out the same way with the same sort of sex differences. Um, and I guess mice are people too is just a, you know, <laughs> a, bit of a way to market that effort. But, but I do strongly believe that, um, people uh, exaggerate the differences between us and every other animal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not so much that I want to convince anyone that mice are more mm-hmm. impressive than you thought they were, although I believe that they are. It's actually more that people are less impressive than you think they are, right? right? But <laughs>
0: right.
2: quantitatively, yes, we have more empathy and more social behavior and more cognitive abilities, but it's only a difference in the amount. There's nothing different in the in the kind between yeah. what we do and what we can do and what at least all the other mammals can do. Mm.
1: So, I like that. I, I like that a lot. I, I
0: I had a I had a pet rat before, uh, Jeff, and and uh, didn't you was, feed that to a,
1: uh, your your other pet python?
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I so I guess I had eventually. like thirty pet rats, <laughs> but uh, but the but uh, uh, she was like. I was blown away. There, I have I've had uh, a couple of cats as well. And Cats aren't people. My rat was way smarter <laughs> cats than cats. Cats are not people. Cats
1: are uh, just vicious. Are the demonic demonic yeah, they're demonic devils. Yeah, yeah. I, I <laughs> had two cats, and
2: I agree with that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, my wife has two cats. Let's put it that way. Um, no, yeah, rats are much better pets than people realize, and they're also yeah. much better pets than mice. Um, mice are mm-hmm. just as smart as rats, but they're way more anxious and way more skittish. Yeah. Uh, whereas rats will totally calm down and they'll, you know, hang out Show on your, on your shoulder, shoulder and they're actually pretty great. Pet. Uh my, yeah.
1: my last question is, um, I, and I'm, I'm, surprised we haven't touched on this yet, but how, how the fuck do you, do you test pain on, on people? Like what, do you just, you get like a MMA fire coming, punch them or... in the punch him <laughs> in the head? Yeah.
2: So there, there's two ways that are really common. Uh, one way is, as I described before, just to take, Um, a metal plate, put it on a body part and heat that metal plate up. Okay. And they either say, um, yeah, okay, it's pain now, or you do it for a certain amount of time and they'll say that's a four. Um, Another very common way is something called the cold presser test where you have them put their arm in let's say four degrees Celsius water that hurts. Uh, for a minute or three minutes or five minutes sometimes. And that, that hurts a lot. Um, the, the worst thing you can do to people, which we have uh, done one time um, is something called the ischemic tourniquet test, where you put on a blood pressure cuff a little bit tight, not that tight, but then you have them exercise their arm up and down for 20 minutes Um, So all the blood comes out of it. It sounds like it's not safe. It's perfectly safe. Um, But it really, really hurts. I've done it once. I'll never do it again. And people like regularly give scores of nine and 10.
1: Whoa. We should try that. uh, Put it on TikTok, Brian.
3: Would that be similar? uh, Yeah. (laughs) Would that be similar to cycling? Like if you like in terms of uh, after a very, you know, if you're riding for three hours and at the tail end of that, you're like, Ow. I can't Ow. I can't produce nearly the same effort. I'm, I'm in pain. You're
2: absolutely right. It's the same type of pain. It's ischemic pain. Although the pain you get uh, six hours after that or 12 hours after that, that's a completely different type of pain. That's right. called delayed onset muscle soreness, <laughs> um, which is Dumb. a really interesting phenomenon too because that's pain that everyone thinks is good. Because mm. that means they had a good workout and they're getting stronger and, you know, they're getting gains, <laughs> yeah.
1: right? I, um, I, I keep saying the, the, like, last question, but it, it, more, <laughs> more and more keeps coming to me. But uh, the other day, yeah. so, okay, so I, I've, I've seen, like, several videos on on YouTube now of, like, of this theory. And I don't know if it's true or not. M- maybe it's just, like, a sort of, like, Vanity Fair type, like, interesting clickbaity thing. But um, these videos where it's, like, people put their hands in ice water And, and they test their, they test them like, you know, it's obviously that's like a, that, that becomes a painful thing, but they were, they were testing the amount of time that someone puts their hand in water without swearing and then versus the amount of time with their hand in water with, with like swearing. And the people who swore (laughs) um, could, could like tolerate the pain longer. And the reason I ask is because I, I have a, I have a sailor's mouth. I swear all the time, but the other day I chopped off, a huge hunk of my my middle finger and as as I chopped through it immediately I started just swearing like nobody's business because i was like maybe this will help (laughs) um is there any truth to that like is is that is that a true is that a real study that like swearing can actually get you like get you through a sort of pain threshold
2: it was a real study in a real journal um and you know as far as that study goes it looks pretty reasonable um yeah People shouldn't really believe anything after one study, right? <laughs> yeah, things right, aren't right. real until there's, you know, 20 studies in a meta-analysis. But yeah, that was a real study by a real, you know, respected group. I, okay. I, and I'm sure it's real.
1: Cool. Yeah. Well, Jeffrey, I got to say, this has been uh, as fascinating as I was expecting it to be. Uh, loved having you on the show. Yeah. We really appreciate that you took time out of your schedule today to sit down and chat with us. Thank you so much. It was fun yeah, for yeah, me too. Cool. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff.
3: That is it for today. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in.
0: If you like what you heard, make
1: sure that you share our podcast with your friends. We love those extra ears. Sick Boy Podcast is a Snack Labs production. It is produced by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, Brian Stever, and Lauren Sankey. Sound design is coming to you from Donovan the Meerkat Morgan. The music of the show is from our friend Rich O'Coin. And Sick Boy Podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis. That is it for today. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. And I'm Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy.